0: As you know it's a super informal really casual event we're actually live streaming the first half hour in this discussion and um, so hello everyone online I feel like a blogger Yes. Actually, I think there's about over like 150 people dialing in so I'm gonna put both of your names on my 40th birthday guest list as an appearance just to pull in all the nice. people and um, so after the half hours done we're gonna close off this Chatham house Uh, any questions that anyone has online, please do put them into the chat. We're gonna be fielding questions this way. If we don't get to them, there's gonna be resources shared afterwards. I think Izzy's putting them in the the chat link now, the link, yeah, yeah, cool. So without further (laughs) ado, uh, we're gonna be talking about effective governance through the lens of responsibility and sustainability, and drawing on the experience of Charles. Uh, long-serving char of Patagonia and Seth, CEO of altruistic with more than 20 years' experience in sustainability, to layer in the lens of data.
1: Started very young, yeah. I was about to say, <laughs> just <laughs> under 20 years, if we're being, being precise.
0: But... Um, so, Charles, I'm going to start with you. Okay. Uh, when it comes to building a mission-driven organization, how do you do it in a way that's built to last?
2: Mm. Well. Um... I mean, I think there's lots of answers to that question at Patagonia. The way we do it is we think, you know, so our mission is simple now, which is we're in business to save the home planet, but how do you make that operational in everybody's work every day? Right. And I think, so you have to break that down into what are the principles that we use to manage the business and the values that underlie those principles, you know, all of which adds up to, we're in business to save the planet. And then all that needs to be lived every single day. It can't be, incon- nothing that you do can be inconsistent, right? Because that, otherwise that, that, it, that, then it doesn't happen. And so in uh, every interaction, in all, in, in the way we treat our people, um, in how we measure our performance, you know, you spend a lot of time on that, um, in uh, every communication that we make. Um, and I think maybe the most important thing to make it part of culture um, is to you know, challenge yourself every single day by whether you're living the mission or not. And for Patagonia, that means we do town hall meetings every other week, which sounds crazy for a company of 3600 people, but you have to be, um, incredibly vulnerable and honest with people in order for people to really feel like they're living a mission that's as ambitious as we're in business disabled, Mm. right? So if there's anything, when you live that kind of a mission, if there's anything that doesn't feel true to the mission, it's sort of um, it pollutes everything that you do. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a very long answer to, to the question, rambly and babbly.
0: Not at all. But you talk a lot about transparency in Canada yeah, as well.
2: Right. I mean, it's it's making sure that every policy practice um, behavior is consistent with values and principles that support the mission. And then it, it means the behaviors that reinforce that.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah you going to say, Seth?
1: Yeah, I was actually just going to say that I think one of the things that we see being true for every mission-oriented brand is that the hardest thing becomes consistency. Yeah. Actually, you kind of put in the hard work on building the mission-oriented brand, right. but then actually staying true to that year after year after year and never letting the consumer down and never letting the other stakeholders right. down. That actually is, is the long-term challenge here. I think that's exactly right. And we do, you know,
2: we, as you know, we don't say sustainability because we feel like that's still in front of us. We say re- responsibility. And res- part of responsibility is not that you never mess up. It's that when you do mess up, you own up. Yeah. Right. Um, and we do let people down, right. and bo- both our, our teams sometimes and, and our, our customers
0: sometimes. And Seth, so are there ways in which you've seen organizations use data to prop up that mission?
1: Yeah, I, I think that there's something around translating the mission into data and into what you need to achieve. And so if I, let's say, start with a consumer brand, uh, most consumer brands are now thinking about circularity and trying to incorporate some element of that into the mission. And so circularity then, let's say, becomes the theme. You then say, Mm -hmm. well, what type of uh, um, KPI or metric is correlated with achievement against this theme? And so in circularity, maybe you say actually recyclability, the odds that this product is going to end up, again, reused in the system. And you maybe want to get those odds from one in 20 right now, depending on the product to maybe one in four. Uh, And so you've already then got, what is the the thing that you're solving for? You can now start to work that through and say, what type of input data do I need? And more importantly, what type of business activities need to actually move those numbers around? So I would actually start with the mission and work then to the data rather than start with the data and then try and come up with a mission.
2: And then it seems to me. The other part of it is that you constantly revise and improve how you think about the data.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's a a work in progress because I think the other, you you mentioned transparency and honesty, and you you talked about Patagonia failing and letting people down. And the truth is, of course, that's true for every business. Some businesses are forthright about it and some aren't. And what, what I really liked was your example where when you're solving for your metrics, and your data systems, you thought about version one. And when you did version one, you thought, this is the best thing ever. This is going to solve all of our emissions calculations. And exactly. no one has something like this. And then you suddenly realize, oh wait, like two years later, this has lots of holes in it. Let's actually come up with version two. And then you go through the whole cycle again. And and we're on version four. <laughs> no,
2: no. And Every single time we're sure now we've got, it. there you go, right. And, you know, we're doing it at the product level, um, you know, and it's multi, multi, faceted at every single product level,
1: and I know we'll throw this out in three years and do better. At the same time, Charles, one of the things that we've riffed about now and then is this uh, idea of what is it, bit, where you're tight and where you're loose yeah. in terms of the, the pieces that are important to you. I'd actually, sorry, I mean, not to steal the question, but I'd, I'd love to just, because the I think... The tight and
0: loose phrase got me, so I'm gone now, so you carry on.
1: Because yeah, I, I, I find that really, really interesting, actually, as a
2: way yeah. to think about it. Well, and I mean, I'm sure we don't have it right, but you know, when we think about, um, especially long-term governance, Mm -hmm. right. Um, when you, so Patagonia is 50 years old this year, and we, we are, as we did this set of moves last year to transfer all the ownership of the company to it's called a perpetual purpose trust. Um, when we set up the governance rules, which were written by Claire Chouinard she wrote the, the charter, a manifesto. What we discovered is there's some things you absolutely want to, like you never want them to change. And we hope that you could chisel it in granite and 200 years from now, you look at it and think, yeah, that's right. But there are some things we know will be different. Yeah. Like the, 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 the environmental crises of tomorrow will be different. The social needs of hundred years from now will be different. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to leave room for the loose part and loose tight. Right, and it's really hard. It's hard. You have to you have to imagine futures, good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. Right, where you want to give people enough room. D- does anybody here like dystopic fiction? Yes. <laughs> it's just terrible, right? I mean, it's a terrible, <laughs> it's a terrible thing. But I, I always think about all the dystopias. You know, Margaret Atwood's amazing dystopia, and then imagine how would our principles stand up if that was the world that unfolded.
1: Um, Would we have the right balance of loose tight? Mm -hmm. The uh, last time Charles and I riffed on this particular topic, um, I think we kind of reached similar conclusions through slightly different metaphors. Mm. Uh, For for you, it was loose tight. And then for me, I I kind of think about, like, as a a law graduate back in the day, I I think Mm. about constitutional law and common law. Love it where constitutional law is like codified and you want this to stand the test of time and you want to have somehow conceived of almost every eventuality right? and, and it's that, hard to change. It's hard to change, okay. but by, by its nature it's designed to be hard to change yeah. and that can be a really good thing. At the same time, if you look at the common law system like the, which, which the British exported basically all over the world, uh, that's designed to be flexible, where it's designed to evolve and you have a direction of travel but you're actually quite agnostic. It's almost immoral as a system where you acknowledge that over time, this might go in many different directions. Yeah. And I think that's an important design choice.
2: I love that. And I, you know, and I think the complication to that is who decides, yeah. you know, right. And, you know, you have a body of law, with constitutional law, and you have an evolving body of law, with common law. When you have uh, governance to institutions at top of companies, that are self-replicating. Yeah. How do you make sure that there's sort of like a bad apple doesn't get into mm-hmm. the into the barrel?
0: And Charles, what are some of the ways that Patagonia has reinforced its mission through appropriate governance?
2: Yeah. Um, well, we're. I think that that's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. So the most important thing is to have this charter, which is mm-hmm. mostly constitutional law, to use your analogy then and then a set of thresholds under which you could change any any part of that and then um, those who are lawyers here know how this works but we have trust we have trust protectors
1: Mm
2: -hmm. um, who are there to be the conscience of the current governors against the against the charter and who can actually pull you know a very difficult to break you know break break glass and pull lever when there's demonstrably um, a divergence from the values of the people that that have been enshrined in that constitutional law of it. And the funny thing is we take the 2%, the 2% of the shares that are economics of the shares that are the voting shares. Um, that money that flows to those is there as a kitty (laughs) to fight the, the, some future board that's gone wrong. Isn't that, it's sort of like, it's, we've (laughs) pre-funded, we've pre-funded the battle. It's, it's imperfect, right? It's imperfect. Because it's hard to imagine every eventuality in the future.
0: And we talk a lot in like responsibility and sustainability around alignment, buy-in incentives. What are some of, can you give any tangible examples of how that's played out with Patagonia's experience?
2: Yeah. I mean, so we've been living for a long time in a company that was, you know, held by a very small um, group of people who had no interest in the money and were, every, every extra penny was given away um, that didn't go into the company. So. Um, I think the, the most important thing is um, all of the uh, compensation evaluation, people decisions in the company are aligned with those that same set of values, mm-hmm. so that you walk and talk the same the same set of values, and that I think I think it's consistent with the first question you asked. Really, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's an overlap there.
0: Yeah, um,
2: but you know, it, I, I think having governance principles that then are consistent with the everyday um, practices is important and really difficult to get right. Because right. otherwise constitutional law feels like it's up here.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's not relevant. It's an abstract piece that uh, you're expecting a judiciary somewhere to enforce. It's not lived experience. But if there's some break between that and people's lived experience,
2: then they smell, yeah. you know, not imperfection, but something that's mm. Yeah,
0: that's not authentic, yeah. And mm. right. so the same with if we think about everyone that's here and dialed in when it comes to environmental data, what are some of the ways in which companies can use that to back that alignment, the incentives, the buy-in across the business?
1: Yeah, I mean, so like, you know, coming at this a little from our perspective at Altruistic, we're sort of of owning one part of that problem, but we're seeing what needs to happen to make our part effective. So the part that we do is obviously the data management, environmental, corporate data, product level data. But actually what you need is three or four things to work in tandem from what we're seeing. One is uh, the purpose and the vision and the mission, and that's what we've been talking about here. There's a second piece around incentives, and we've kind of referred to that a bit, but what you want is if you think of the existing incentive structure, we have bonuses, promotions, KPIs at the level of teams and individuals, you need that to also reinforce what you're trying to achieve. Then you think of the recyclability piece, right, where we want to increase the odds that a product will be recycled from one in 20 to one in four. You actually need multiple teams working on that problem. You need a team that's working on the design, a team that works, works on the sourcing, a team that works on the consumer narrative. So there's this whole thing about that incentive structure working. Mm-hmm. I think there's a piece around tools, and you know that's where we play. Yeah. in, But there are other tools. Uh, there's a piece around coaching and guidance and education. And most of the people in this room are sustainability savvy, uh, and many of the ones joining on online. But there are count there for every one of you. There's fifty others in the organization that aren't, yeah. and they all need to change things too. And
2: when you're speaking, one of the other things that occurs to me: it's one thing to get your own house in order and of course that means you know having very clear measures that everybody understands and holding yourself to account against improvement and as soon as you achieve something then you need to set a higher goal. But in the world that most of the people in this room live in, we live in a world where we don't control the entire ecosystem. Um, so we work with suppliers um, including you know suppliers of fiber, spinners of fiber some of them are in the room today, um, makers of garments under your under your design direction, and then of course, when we sell things to, to people, we hope that we get them back. <laughs> One of the ways we can ensure circularity is by actually caring about when people when, when a garment comes to the end of its life, how can we deconstruct it? Um at the moment, we don't control all the pieces yeah. of that, but we are now taking um internal responsibility for all of that, right? Which means, you know, if if there's a if there's a spinning plant that's using coal. We have to put we have to put that on a transition, yeah. either out of that energy or out of our life. Yeah.
1: And the more you take responsibility, um, it, the harder. You know, the harder it I was in a, in a conversation with Valeda, which I think is another yeah. really forward leaning brand in the personal care space. And what they've, what they've concluded, which I think is a really fact based, rational conclusion, is you actually need the consumer to start switching towards cold showers, ultimately, to really be able to move the needle on the holistic problem uh, that they're facing and that then becomes, you know, you're owning, you're responsible for that challenge, but you need to get a narrative across the line to buy the consumer into the vision and actually make a design choice right. that's uncomfortable, at least for me. Right.
2: And one of the reasons why we favor direct um, over wholesale is because we can and we have that relationship with the customer, which is this incredibly important two way relationship about responsibility. When someone buys a Patagonia um, garment, we are hoping that we're engaged in then a long-term
1: co-responsibility. It's also an identity purchase, that you're you're, you're engaging that identity purchase, and part of the deal, where the consumer sees this as reinforcing their sense of identity as a sustainable consumer, part of the bargain is they should act sustainably with the product.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Talking about consumer messaging, the big hairy monster that is greenwashing, greenhushing, I know your take already on this, but how has Patagonia managed to walk that line so well balanced?
2: Tell the truth. I mean, it sounds like a silly thing, right? But I think people get in trouble by exaggerating how far they've come. That's the obvious thing to do. And um, that just would never fly. I mean, in Patagonia, we we definitely risk more the other side of it, which is, you know, always saying what we're doing, what we're doing sucks. Um, but that's disingenuous too, right? You know, and so I, I don't, we never trumpet what we're doing is perfection. We call it a being responsible on a path um, to, to sustainability. Patagonia is ultimately a small business, much smaller than many of the businesses that are represented in the room, right? We don't quote the numbers, but you can kind of figure it out. Um, the only way we can have impacted being in business to change the, to save the home planet is by uh, setting an example that we hope other people will become part Mm. of. And if you exaggerate and then are shown to exaggerate, that's the worst sort of thing. But if you, if you underplay, um, then you're, you're also in a way doing something incredibly disingenuous. So we try and say, here's where we're trying to go and here's where we are, which is short of where we intend to be and just be straight.
1: I would almost say if you underplay you're selling the mission short right and that's actually worse than selling yourself short
2: right and it shows in a way it's the worst sort of thing which is you're not actually confident that you're on the right path yeah. um, there were, I remember the day when Yvonne first appeared in the um, Forbes 100 or 500 whoever that thing is that says you're rich you know <laughs> and he said oh my god I, I think you know peop- I've never met a billionaire are we on tape? Who wasn't a, and he used, you didn't he hear used a term of art that's sort of south of your belt, um, and um, and I, my response was, look, you know, if you can't build a good company by doing the right stuff, then we really are screwed, right? And, you know, of course, he's, he solved the first part of that by giving all the money to this, um, to the set of charitable entities that now own Patagonia, but I do, I do think that, you know, that challenge, remains in front of us.
0: Mm. And sure. What about data? So a, a lot of the time we wait until data is good enough, but what is good enough? Like at what point can people talk about what they're doing and the outputs with minimal risk?
1: Yeah. You know, I think that there's a lot of sort of fetishization of data mm. for data's sake mm. in this space and putting numbers out there. Whereas actually like data is an input to a strategy to drive change. And based on that change, you tell a narrative and a story. And that's kind of, I think that to me is the logical chain or sequence. And if you look at your, let's say environmental data, there are going to be parts where you have a high enough level of comfort on the data to craft a strategy that you can rely on to deliver real change. Let's take energy data. Most of us in this room are companies that have a reasonable handle on their energy data. And they know how much they use and they know let's say what the emissions of that is you can then craft a strategy that has a phased approach to replacing that with renewable energy and you can then rightly go and talk about it right if you say we've switched to 100 renewable energy that is a fact-based easy to prove argument which is you know a reliable one if you look at other parts of the challenge like mm-hmm. where we're switching to regenerative agriculture and we've got you know, most companies yet haven't got a common definition of regenerative agriculture. And we, some of us have talked about this, there's movement on that, but the data is so poor in quality that you're still figuring out what it looks like, what you're going to do, how you deploy, how you action. It's way too soon to start then talking about it in the outside world and expect that no one is going to call you out. Mm -hmm. That's why it's it's important to be modest and honest and, and direct
2: at the same time. I mean, I think, It is interesting. And that's why you have to overthrow your system every few years, which is, it's great to be on top of energy. Are you on top of water? Yeah, exactly. Are you on top of fibers? Are you on top of dangerous chemistries, right? Um, And and we will have a new set, I'm
1: sure. Exactly. And I think actually that if you're honest and transparent about the process and what you're doing and the intention, that gets you a long way, Mm -hmm. ultimately.
0: And Charles, you talk a lot about imperfectionists being key in uncertain times. And I've mentioned that that triggers me as a recovering perfectionist. Um, All of us. (laughs) uh, But what are some like thinking about purists and people that are wanting to get this right? What would be some of the advice that you'd give to me or others that might be similar when it comes to data and getting that from an environmental perspective?
2: Yeah, I mean I, I mean I think everyone in the room probably is in the room because they've been on this journey, right? And mm-hmm. it's the most delicious place to be is the deep ecology place to be, right? Because, you know, that's the it is the purest feeling position. But it's not one that you can actually take action on tomorrow. So it's a it's a throwing stones at other people judgment position, not a not an activist, a real activism means you we have to do something. And I think we have to recognize that. we've discussed today that we will outgrow the measures that we're fighting so hard to improve today but if you don't get started that's the that's the imperfectionist part if we don't actually get started we won't we won't move down this journey at all Mm -hmm. and i think railing at the behavior of others while sort of intellectually you know or emotionally satisfying is is ultimately a vapid you know place to be Mm -hmm. Um, so we should all get started. Huh. Y- Yvonne says, look, you know, we're, we're probably all screwed, but you have to get up every day and, and do better.
1: <coughs> you have to, you have, what's the alternative? Maybe, Amy, also just to, just to build on Charles's points in a different direction <laughs> as well, right? Uh, not necessarily a more positive direction, but I think that the thing is that a lot of us are mission-driven, but we also have to work with people who are much less mission-driven yeah. than we are. And when I was starting Altruistic, someone gave me sort of this advice, which is they said, you're, you're going to have missionaries and a lot of them to start with, and then you're going to have mercenaries. And that's actually fine. And you need both to get to places with this, with this agenda. And I think for us, we, we feel like we're imperfect because our, our, sort of, uh, our idea of where we want to end up with isn't as purest, but actually there's a lot of other people that we need to bring into this church with us. And they're going to be driven by very different KPIs, motivations, et cetera. And so we need to we need to really move away from that ideological extreme position. And I think, frankly, a lot of us in sustainability come from that space and we just expect others in the business to just get it and do it because it's the right thing to do. And actually, I think that's that's just the wrong logic and argument Mm -hmm. to really drive change
0: here. And how can governance play into that? So we think about there's a lot around cross-functional collaboration. I was talking to Chris earlier around this as well, around how do you actually drive that? across a business when actually a lot of that mission-driven sits within this one function? And how can governance mm. and board come in to support that?
2: You <laughs> to did. Well, I, you know, I think I work inside a sort of extraordinary, different kind of organization where we don't feel that duality that you're mm. just, I think you're right. I mean, oh, you're from the sustainability. Department. Um, we don't have any of that. Um, right. So you probably work in more
1: organizations. Yeah. I mean, I the, I kind of think of business par- parallels in business history. And I think of the <clears throat> digital transition as a parallel where, you know, like 10 years ago, organizations suddenly realized we need to do something about digital and it's not IT. It's different. It's digital. Yeah. And then you sort of start with this whole transformation thing. And then the logic is that you want to embed this within every business uh, unit or every part of the business. And so you go and you kind of set up this team, and this team's job is ultimately to embed. It's not necessarily to own long term. It's to embed. And I sort of think of sustainability in a similar way.
2: Yeah. And so, and maybe there's an there's another thought, which is, um, as long as sustainability feels like a drag on the real business, which is making money, you really are you're never going to get anywhere. Never going to get where you need to go. Yeah. one of the things we've realized in Patagonia, and we are a business, like we're owned by a non-business now, but we are a business. Um, we're in business to save the home planet. Um, every time we do the right thing, it's good for business. Even when we do the right thing in ways that are painful to short-term profitability. And I think we we finally feel like we've, we're leaving behind that duality. Are there any examples,
0: actually? Like- yeah, I mean,
2: I think there are lots of examples, you know, where... We make a short-term decision that's difficult for profitability. And, you know, this, I described this, once you sort of put your arms around all your suppliers and say, hey, we're we're all in this together, you actually have to you have to fund or pre-fund energy transitions, water transitions, et cetera. That hurts you in the short term. But it, it increases your relationship, that trust relationship yeah. with customers in a way that's just, you know, utterly priceless. And when people then come to trust you when they buy a Garmin, that they're what they pay, which is more than um, a, a crappy garment, is ac- is actually because it embodies all the real costs. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, so ultimately that's good business. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. People can feel good. And the data actually substantiates I think that. that's true. Right? Which is that if a consumer feels the product is more sustainable, they're more loyal because they've made that decision once and they don't right. want to revisit it again and again. So they're less likely to start switching. Right. But. When you have to pre-fund something and hope, you know, that, that people will honor
2: it, it's hard. And I think once you've done it, you know, for years, then you start to trust it. Like, okay, I'm gonna do the right thing and I'm gonna believe that it it's good for business. Mm-hmm.
0: I love it. Um quite although we might be completely up now, I've not got a watch on me as usual. Hardly so to every anyone that's been streaming in thank you uh, any questions that have come in or we'll respond to them via the link that izzy shared earlier but thank you for joining um and we're going go to the... <laughs> <laughs> go <Good way. laughs>